Well, I need a volunteer here. I was uh, looking for a volunteer. Hmm, okay. I need someone who's very brave, someone bold. Oh, I see that hand. Come on up, come on up. Emily, here's what I'd like you to do. This end, I'm gonna hold on to. This, if you could just take and just go wherever you want, okay? <laughs> Until it's gone. Whoop, hold on. We'll get it on the floor at least. Okay, yeah, just, okay. You just, whoop, don't let it fall off. You just hike around and then when it's gone, you can head back to your seat. But go, go all over the place. Okay, try not to wrap it around anybody's neck or anything. Okay, I, is this a good idea? Yeah. <laughs> All right, you're doing great. That's exactly, and that, how about that way? Yeah, go that way, good. Okay, now if you have to go to the bathroom, just be warned. <laughs> Don't trip up in the blue cord. All right, we're gonna say more about that in a little bit. I titled the sermon this morning, The Grace-Filled Warnings of a Wrathful God. The Grace-Filled Warnings of a Wrathful God. And I think those, those words should capture the way we receive these words today from Jesus. This is love, this is compassion, this is grace at work as he teaches us about how significant the wrath of God is. And uh, so we enter in this morning with that as a backdrop. We also enter into the context of, of chapter 16. Remember, the love of money was what Jesus was targeting, the love of money. You cannot serve two masters, right? If you love money, you will be devoted to that and you will hate God. If you love God, you can see money, but you don't have to be mastered by it. You can use it to the end of love for God, right? So that is the first piece. And then last week, we talked about the law, the law. And really, I wanna put in view the law of love because these Pharisees, they were detail keepers. They, they were all about the minutia, but they were ignoring the very heart of the law, which first and foremost was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they were saying, well, we love money. And we don't wanna choose. We think we should be able to do both. And then, today we're gonna see, not only were they lovers of money, but they were lovers of self. And Jesus is unmasking how deep this ran, their lack of compassion and, and care and mercy for those around them. Instead, it was replaced with judgment and, and harsh treatment of those that they felt didn't measure up. And so Jesus, with this backdrop, moves into another parable. And uh, the second half of, of chapter 16 is where we'll be. So let's begin in verse 19. I titled these verses, A Rich Man and a Poor Man. Okay, we've got a, a couple people that we're gonna be introduced to here. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now just pause here. We've got one character we've been introduced to. He's a rich man. Don't miss this though, no name. No name is given. That's significant, especially in a Jewish culture. Uh, a rich man, well, he was a big deal, right? You, you assume a rich man is, is, is to be named. Jesus purposefully does not name this man. He refuses to give him a name, to give him that recognition. And that's a statement right out of the gate. 
So he describes how this man was living. Now again, this is just Jesus illustrating a point and his parable has a goal. So this character is clothed in purple and fine linen, which means he had massive amount of money and he had the top of the line clothes. And he feasted sumptuously every day. Well, what does that tell us? A lot of things. Uh, This nameless man is incredibly wealthy. He has uh, no concern about what he's going to eat, and, and if anything, his only concern is that it's better than what he had yesterday, right? So there is no concern that the banquet is too big. It's a feast every day. It also tells us that he's probably not a faithful practicing Jew because he feasts every day. Hmm. He is a very healthy man at least in the sense that uh, he is not devastated by any disease. Uh, So he's falling right into the prosperity gospel slot here, healthy, wealthy, and feasting every day. Maybe we'll fill in the blank. Happy, maybe smiley, right? He's just healthy, wealthy, and happy. Well, that sounds great, right? Isn't that what spiritual life and success looks like? Again, go back to last week. Those who were esteemed in that category were assumed to be those who were blessed by God. Okay, now, character number two. Jesus goes on. At his gate, at the rich man's gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, named Lazarus, who was covered with sores and who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. What do we learn about this man? Well, a lot, just in a few lines. Number one, we learn his name. Jesus esteems the poor man by naming him Lazarus. Now, don't don't be confused. This is not the actual Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. This is a fictional Lazarus, but the name he remains with, um, Lazarus is, is one who is blessed by God. That's the, the meaning of the name. And uh, so there, there's a contradiction in, in, in characters here. The, the Pharisees would hear this and be like, oh, really? Blessed by God? Hmm. I don't see it, right? He's poor, incredibly poor. He's incredibly sick and unhealthy. Some type of skin disease, uh, boils or whatever it was that he had just ravaged him such that, that, that the dogs would come and his only comfort was found by the dogs. Now, in this day, it wasn't like our dog, the cute little chihuahua who comes and wants to snuggle, right? If you've met Remy, either he growls at you or he wants to snuggle with you. That's our dog. Uh, in this day, dogs were seen as, as, as uh, pack hunters. They were wild, largely. They, they were not cuddly animals. And they were wild dogs, and they were scavengers. Now, this man is finding comfort from the wild dogs coming to lick his source because, in a sense, no one else will. He is unable to re- resolve his health issues, and he, lay, he lays at the gate longing for the crumbs that fall from the table of the rich man. Hmm. Don't miss this as well. At his gate was laid, okay, What does that tell us? It means this man is not hiking in himself. He has people who are there who bring him and set him down to beg at the gate of this man. He is immobile. 
He is as low as you could imagine. He is needy. But he has a name. Every day, the rich man and his brothers that we'll meet later, they pass by this man. And what we find here is there is no evidence of care or kindness at all mentioned. This, it says he longs to be fed with what falls from the rich man's table. It doesn't say he was being fed. So the longing is there. He sees this feasting every day, and he's like, can I just eat your garbage? Is, that, is it too much to ask? No evidence that even that was given this man. One commentator suggested that the wild dogs were at the house because they were the ones eating the garbage. And what, what they did when they were done is come over and comfort the poor man who could not move to get it. Hmm. You think of the law. You think of the law of love. You think of what the Pharisees would have known in these verses and how they're processing right now as Jesus speaks this parable. What are they thinking? Well, I think right now they're esteeming the rich man and not so much the poor man. But what Jesus is wanting to do is kind of call them out of this, this blindness that they have with this law. It's all about keeping the law, Jesus. We're about law keeping. Maybe they would have thought of this verse from Micah. He has told you, O Pharisees, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But these three things. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. What a capturing of the heart of God. Of, of what our demeanor is as those who know him and are to reflect him in this world. He is a God of justice. He is a God of kindness. And he is a God who is all glorious and those who are under him should walk humbly before him and with one another. The rich man seems to not fall into these categories. And I think Jesus is, is kind of calling out this pharisaical norm that was so esteemed in his day and saying, there's a contrast here. Now the story just continues to unfold. If the Pharisees thought that there was more coming, they, they wouldn't have guessed this, ever. Verse 22 through 24, the eternal reversal. Eternal reversal. The poor man died, Jesus says, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, or hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off at Lazarus' side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Well, think about this. What an amazing exchange this is. First of all, we've got to remember who it is who is saying these words. This is Jesus. Now, now I don't ever want to pit Scripture against Scripture. It could be Peter. It could be Paul. It could be James. It could be anyone who is under inspiration of God. So I don't want to ever suggest that Jesus' words or the red letters are more the work of God than the others. They're all the words of God, okay? 
But when Jesus gives a, a window into the realities of, of hell, that's a credible window, is it not? He knows exactly what it's like. A few things to consider. This is one of the most in-your-face curtain pulls on the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. One of the weaknesses of modern-day preaching is a lack of the second. We may talk about the glories of heaven, but there needs to be more, I believe, on the horrors of hell. A pastor I worked with for a number of years in California just recently posted his disgust at a billboard that was posted that said, heaven with all the clouds and blue sky or hell with the fire. And it says, you need to decide. And then it, it just basically said, text this number and we'll talk, you know. I think it's the best billboard ever. That's important. Like, hey, people, this life is going to issue into eternity. What you do with these short years determines your eternity. You have to choose. You have to, you have to re reckon with this. My former partner in ministry believed that this was an inappropriate billboard. And he spoke about the love of God and all of the good things of God and that we should never scare people with the fires of hell. I totally disagree. Jesus disagrees. Friends, you cannot say the love of God is amazing and only talk about the warm fuzzies up here if you don't have the contrast of what his love has actually saved us from. This is what we deserve. This is where we're running with all our might left to ourselves. We all go here. We need to stare into the fire to understand the nature and the reach of his love. We will never sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a hell-bound, justly condemned wretch like me. It's not that amazing without a view to the fire. So, let's consider this. Number one, all men die, right? The rich and the poor. The haves and the have-nots. We're all gonna die, friends. We're going to die. Either that or the Lord comes back. But the reality is the same. Uh, judgment is coming. I mean, just think of, of John the Baptist in his ministry. Flee from the wrath to come. Guys, there will be a day where you meet with judgment. It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This life, and then judgment. This guy who suggested he died and spent time in hell, 23 minutes or something like that, and you have a stopwatch going, that's hogwash. There are no second chances. You have one life, and that's it. Heaven or hell. That, that whole book denies this entire passage, just by the way. Handle that stuff lightly. Handle the word of God with, with a tight grip. I don't need a kid that went to heaven to prove heaven is real, and I don't need a guy who spent 23 minutes in hell to prove that hell is real. I don't need any of that. 
What I need is the word of God that speaks authoritatively, not from some experience or dream. Authoritative revelation of God himself. The poor man's death is a fascinating thing. There's no burial. In fact, I even wonder what happened to his body. Maybe those who cared at least enough to bring him and set him at the rich man's gate had enough compassion there to, to take his body away and, and deal with it. But there, there's no mention even of a burial. But that's okay. Because when he died, passed from this life into the next, it says he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The idea of Abraham's side is, is the, the embrace of Abraham. This is, this is a, a comfort. Welcome home, my son. The rich man's death, however, was a little different. He was mourned and, and grieved, I'm sure certainly by his brothers. There was a burial that took place, right? The rich man, a very uh, notable man in that city was given a burial. Everything seemed to be great and in order. Here's the problem though. He went to hell. Like that. When you pass from this life into the next, you enter into the glory and peace and joy of an unending life with God through Jesus Christ alone. Or you immediately enter into what I understand from, from this is a, 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 a torment in hell in endless flames such that his misery is so great that he would long just for the water. I mean, how many drips can you get off a finger dipped in water? Maybe one or two. Just give me a drop of water to ease my suffering in these flames. What do we believe at this church about the realities of hell? We believe and teach that through Adam's voluntary disobedience to the revealed will of God, the entire human race, that's all of us, fell, incurring the penalty of spiritual and physical death, becoming subject to the righteous wrath, righteous, legally just wrath of God towards sin. All humans are therefore guilty, sinners by nature, choice, and divine declaration. We are inherently, friends, and totally, not, not uh, what's the word I'm reaching for? Not, uh, we are totally depraved, not utterly depraved. We're not as bad as we might be, you know? We, we haven't done mass murder, okay? But we are totally depraved in that there is nothing in us that is good. There, there's nothing in us left to ourselves that is good or praiseworthy or warranting of God's saving grace. We are enslaved to sin, uh, to sin, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God through ignorance. We are hardened in heart. We are morally and spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And here's the reality. We are facing eternal conscious torment in hell. We are unable to see or enter. Now, I use that word very importantly. Unable. We lack the ability on our own to see or enter 
the kingdom of God unless we are born again of the Holy Spirit. That is a very bleak reality, friends. And that is what the Bible presents, is true for all of us. If God does nothing, we all burn. Let me just say this again. If God does not step in, intervene, everybody goes to hell. No one is saved. Zero people in heaven. No one is good enough. No one is, is able or desiring of heaven left to themselves. Eternal conscious torment. Now, people I know who have notably written, Rob Bell specifically, a guy I worked with for a few years, he drew the conclusion, which is uh, an apostate position, actually, that eternal conscious torment is an overreaction by God, therefore it cannot be the God who actually is. And he redefined God in his own mind to be some zim-zim gibberish, whatever that is. Is eternal conscious torment an overreaction? Now, now we've gotta stare at this honestly. Do you feel that? I saw an interview that he did recently and, 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 and he said, so yeah, so, so I live, say, 75 years, and I commit sins against this God, and in 75 million years from now, I'm still paying for those? Does that seem fair? That's, a, that's what he's saying. What would you say to that? How do we reckon with the realities of an unending, active, conscious torment by God on those who rebel against him? This is the simple equation. God is just, which means retribution or divine retribution is never an overreaction, never. It has to be, in order to establish what is right and righteous, it has to be exactly the punishment that fits the crime. So what we should then be saying, instead of, God, you're overreacting, we should be saying, wow, our sin is a bigger deal than we realize. You see, what I'm, you see what I'm getting at? We underestimate how offensive our sin is against an infinitely holy God. It's not an overreaction. It's perfect justice applied. And here's the equation. A God of infinite holiness is sinned against in our sins. When we transgress the infinite worth and value of God. That, my friends, is an infinite offense. It's an unending trespass, warranting unending punishment. That is why the scriptures teach, as this reveals, there is an unending torment, active wrath of God. It will never be done, ever. And there are billions of people who are right now desperately longing in the fires of hell for the tiniest drop of water to ease their suffering under the righteous wrath of God. There are people that you work with day after day who are going there 
Do you feel what that does? See, we, when we stop and consider what is, it sharpens us a bit. This is what Jesus wants to do here. He wants us to stop and say, wait a second. What is happening here with these days? It reminds me of the quote from the movie Gladiator. What we do in life echoes in eternity. I would change it. I would say what we do in life determines eternity. If you walk through this life with a, a hard heart and, you, and a stiff arm toward Jesus Christ, your future is fire. If, however, by God's grace, you turn and you humble yourself and you bow before him and you receive by faith his finished work on your behalf to pay for your wrath on his own shoulders, your future is glory and peace forever. So, Jesus says, this rich man who's in this flame, he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in this flame. Now, this is what jumped out to me. He says to Abraham, Father Abraham. What does that tell us about this man? The rich man. He's a Jew, and he's in hell. This is inconceivable to a Jewish audience. That's where the Gentiles go. Jews don't go to hell. Well, maybe just the worst of the worst, but Jews are the chosen people of God. We, we don't go to hell. We're not worried about that. The Gentiles should be. You see, this, this reality, Jesus is shattering the mold of their assumed and just presumed security as the people of God. Father Abraham, he says, while the poor man is by his side, the rich man is calling him father from the fires of hell. That's a contradiction. What does it reveal? Well, it reminds us of Luke 3 when we heard John the Baptist preaching. Listen to these words. Remind your heart of these words in this context. He calls the people who are coming, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and don't even begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones uh, children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. If you do not bear fruit, the tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what should we do? Look at what it says. This is a fascinating thing. What does it look like to bear fruit in keeping with a penitent heart, a heart that has turned from world and money to God to embrace him? As John the Baptist prepares the way for Christ, this is the response. Do you have two tunics? Share with the one who has none. Whoever has food, oh, do likewise. Jesus is taking the teaching of John the Baptist that maybe these Pharisees had heard with their own ears, and he's opening them up to see how rich this sermon truly was by John the Baptist. If you think that your lineage, your family name, your heritage, your, 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 your 
cultural ownership is going to keep you out of the fires of hell, you're wrong. He called it forward. Why is this man in hell? Why did he go to hell? Because he was a sinner. Because day after day, one of the expressions of this man's unrepentant heart was to step over a man in need that he could have easily cared for and shown the heart of God, kindness, justice, hum, humility. He stepped over day after day, and with his brothers, he held a feast while this man starved at his gate. That's sin and selfishness. It's pride, and it's detestable to God. How great a chasm. Verses 25 and 26. How great a chasm. Here's the response from Abraham to the rich man. Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. What do we make of this? This exchange, but just remind yourself, this is a fictional exchange. We've got to be careful that we don't try to squeeze this parable for more than it's worth. Jesus is communicating a point here. The call is, when you live for this life and you want your best life now, you better enjoy it because it's all you get. And it doesn't last long. And it issues into fire forever. If you pour yourself into the love of money and the, the, the accumulation of wealth and selfishness and pride and you get all the accolades and it's all about you, then you better enter in and really enjoy that because it's gone the moment you die. It is fading. And it will not save you. But here's the other thing it points out as well. And Paul calls us to this as well. Not just the temporal reality of earthly treasures, but also the momentariness, the momentary nature of earthly afflictions, right? Paul described his afflictions, which were far worse than most of ours combined. And he, he used these words, light, momentary afflictions. When you hold them up in comparison to the weight of glory that is coming, that's what they're like. They're light and momentary. They're, they're passing too, friends, and some of you have suffered greatly, both physically and in all kinds of different ways. You, your struggle is real, but friends, it's momentary. It's a short little life, and you are going to issue into a joy that when you compare what you've gone through here, it will be described as light and momentary. It takes us back to the quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Until we grapple with the world to come, we aren't really equipped to live in this present world. It shapes everything. It shapes the way you work. It shapes the way you suffer. It shapes the way you, you choose to value and cling. And it shapes the way you release when people who you love die. It changes everything. He went on to say this to the rich man, Abraham speaking. Besides this, between us, so the rich man over here, way over here, comforting Lazarus, 
The poor man, no, 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 backwards, sorry. The poor man is over here at the side of Lazarus. The rich man is way over here experiencing this torment in the fires of hell. And Abraham, uh, Abraham says, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed or set in place in order that those who would pass from here to, to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. The great chasm that is fixed, my friends, is the holiness of God. There is no way for someone who is experiencing the wrath and torment in hell to ever pass from that experience into glory. Purgatory is not a biblical reality. It's fictional and it's phony and it ruins people. It changes it all, it messes everything up. It doesn't exist, friends. There's no middle ground. It's heaven or it's hell and it's forever. It's an eternal separation. And this rich man is, is grappling with this reality. There will be no relief. There's no change. This is permanent. What does Jesus want to, to, to identify with this man? If only, if only I had repented. If only I had shown the, the fruits of repentance in love and grace and the heart of God to this man. If only I would have turned from my love of money and my absorption with self and my sin against a righteous and holy God. We can't press this parable for too much. I think sometimes it's easy to be like, well, wait, can we communicate? Can we see what is it like? How, how does that work? That's not Jesus' purpose in this parable. And I, I think it leads us down all kinds of unshaky ground. So let's take the emphasis and leave it there. It's a story. It's a, it's a parable. Jesus is illustrating a point. Hmm. Now pleading for a messenger. The rich man in the fire now turns, if he can't have any relief himself, then he pleads for help for his brothers. Verse 27, he said to Abraham, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. The word there is torment. It's in his own words as he describes his experience. He's pleading for his brothers now. If I could only tell them what I now know, warn them. You know, there have been some funerals, sadly, where I've been there and, and, and I felt those words were appropriate. If, if so-and-so who has passed from this life and the next could stand here now, I, I am quite sure that they would tell you, turn to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Don't continue ignoring the only hope that you have in this life and the next. Don't waste your life chasing after the wind. Find life and peace with God through Jesus Christ. 
Abraham responded to the rich man and he said, hey, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, your brothers, hear them. Moses and the prophets. Listen to the word of God. He said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes from the dead, then they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Whoa, all of a sudden, we see Jesus opening a door. This is before his work, before the passion. A few thoughts in here. Moses and the prophets. This is the law. This is the book. This is, their, this is their workbook. They know this stuff backwards and forwards. They can quote it all day. Right? They, they know the laws. They know Moses. They claim them as their own. They leverage them for their own self-righteousness. And Jesus is saying, that's more than enough for you to realize your need to repent. If, if your heart is so hard that you can take the, the hammer of the law that reveals our sin and the holiness of God and you can turn it into a self-righteousness machine, it won't matter what happens. Your hearts are hard. You've chosen to close your eyes. The need is for repentance. I, I, I am struck by the word that the, the rich man uses. It's not just I need to know Right? Knowledge about God never saves anyone. You can have perfect doctrine and go to hell. You realize that? Satan himself has a clarity on much of doctrine in a way that we struggle to even get to. But he is not a worshiper. It is not just knowledge. It is a turning to and a turning from sin. I'm turning to Christ and I'm, I'm leaving behind my sin. Repentance. Hmm. Jesus points to his passion. These words come back, I believe. They would echo after his resurrection. It's a scary reality, though, because as he speaks these words to these Pharisees, it's scary to consider their hearts were so hard when Jesus rose from the dead what did they do? They still rejected him. You can send people from heaven into hell. You can send people from heaven back to, you can raise the dead. The reality is, is that hard hearts that reject Christ, reject Moses, the prophets, they will continue to do that. It's a chosen, willful rejection. It reveals the hard hearts. Jesus wants them to grapple with this. He's trying to point out what is so obvious to him, but is so not obvious to them. The hearts are hard. So our response this morning, what is it that the Lord wants us to take from these things? How should we respond in a way that glorifies God? One, I, I just think to embrace these words as God's love, right? This is a grace-filled warning of a wrathful God. Jesus is, in a sense, loving us enough to say, this is what is to come if you do not embrace me as Lord and Savior. This is a grace gift 
a, a glimpse into the horrors of hell. And he's saying, you don't want that. Don't ignore the only way, the only truth, the only life. Some see it as hellfire and damnation, judgment, mean-spirited, no place in the church for that kind of thing. I say just the opposite. It's love. And it's in the Bible, friends. It's right there. Jesus had more to say about hell than anybody in Scripture. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. The worm does not die in that place. The question has to beg, where do you stand with Jesus? Are you headed to that place of torment forever? There is an answer. There is a hope. It is the reality that all of us, those even in this room who have trusted as Jesus, in Jesus as Savior and Lord, the reality is that we were all running with all our might toward that fire until the day came when by God's grace, he changed our hearts. He, he saved us. He opened our eyes, revealed to us the weight of our sin, and then he pointed us to see Christ, our only hope. I'm praying today that that will happen for you, that you will turn from your sin and this race toward the fire and turn to Christ, who's the only savior of sinners. I was thinking about this blue cord. Let me show you. Thank you, Emily, for winding this around the church. You can see it goes all the way around. And this is just 250 feet, okay? Everyone in this room is going to live forever. That's not in question. Every single human being, from conception or all the way to the grave, is going to live forever. The question is, where? And what does the nature of that life look like? In this life, that's how long you, you, you live. Maybe 80, maybe 90, maybe 100. 250 feet of eternity. It stretches, it goes on. And this is just to illustrate my point. This blue cord of eternity never ends. It just keeps going. Think about that. Some of you young people, you're like, man, that, that first inch seems like a long time. It's not. It's not, is it? It goes quickly. I'm halfway through. Likely, maybe way more than that if God calls me home soon. Are you ready for the blue? That's the question. Are you ready? Have you trusted Jesus as Lord? Because think in comparison, look at how short this is compared to all of this. Don't waste your life thinking that this is all there is. This first one inch is like that, and it's over, and it determines all of this. Run to Jesus, cling to him, find mercy and forgiveness and hope in him. You can be certain about your eternity. You can, you can know, you can know that you're saved in this life, you can. 
because at the end of the day, I'm not asking, did I do enough? Is it, is, it, is it in me enough? No, it's not in me. I can't do enough. That's the point. That's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. It's in him. He did all the work. He's the only way that sinners could be forgiven and, and brought out of the wrath of God. You see, the, the, the righteousness of this wrath that was poured on Jesus is exactly what all of us should receive forever. And he drank that whole cup. In six hours, it is finished. And he died. And then he rose. That is our only hope. So there's a lot of people who are preaching out there today and talking about things like love and kindness and all of these things and, and, and you know, warm fuzzies. But here's the reality, friends. If you don't have Jesus, none of that matters because that's not gonna save you. You have to have Jesus. And then the expression of that becomes, oh, I got two coats. You don't have one. Here's the love of Christ. Have this coat. Oh, I'm having a banquet. Someone's over here, has no food. Come, join the banquet. Let me tell you about Jesus, what he did. And on and on and on. It is the overflow of our life and our joy in God that delights to meet the needs of others. That's grace in action. C.T. Studd said this, only one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last. Don't waste your life clinging to worldly experiences and treasures that are going to fade so fast. Give your life to Jesus Christ and live for him. That will last. That will last. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of these words, and sometimes it's a sobering picture of reality. We, we have to stare into these horrors in order to appreciate the wonder and glory of what we have been given in Christ. Father, we worship and give praise to you today because this gift is nothing that we deserve. It is totally of your volition, your will. We are the rebels. We are the sinners, the transgressors. We deserve the fire. But in your lavish grace, you have made a way for sinners and wretches like me to be forgiven and brought in to, made, to be made sons and, and, and daughters and heirs of the kingdom. Oh Lord, thank you for this life. Thank you for this incredible salvation. And we declare it today with confidence and joy, Lord. Oh, give us courage and boldness to see things as they are and not just get lost in the busyness of every day, but to truly understand that people all around us are living and dying and many, if not most, are running with all their might to the fires of hell. Give us courage to speak words of hope and life and warning in love and compassion. We give praise to you for our Savior Jesus and it's in his name we pray, amen.